This episode was first published on September 6, 2014. This is episode 35 of Biblically Speaking, a conversational question and answer show with two guys from Millard Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska. If you found us on iTunes, we're on the web at biblicallyspeaking.fm. We're also on Twitter as Two Guys BSN and on Facebook as Two Guys BSN. If you found us on the web, please do give us a review in iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Enjoy the show. So today I want to ask you about a subsection of the topic of dispensations, specifically dispensational change is what I'm interested in. One specific dispensational change. Or all dispensational changes. You want to talk about the general subject of uh, the transition period between dispensations. Correct. But probably we should treat dispensations a little bit first, because I'm not sure if we've talked about them together here. If we had, it probably was in passing. So uh, I guess I'll start off to say that we know, even though dispensation has become a bit of a naughty word uh, recently in greater Christianity, uh, we know that dispensational teaching is biblical, both in the actual word itself being used by Paul and the concept of house orders of God are right there embedded in Scripture. I've actually talked to people who set their mind about studying anti-dispensationalism. I've never met somebody that actually isn't dispensational at all. They just don't understand what that what it means, I guess, or something. Because even a Reformed person who do not like or think that they look at the Scriptures at all dispensationally uh-huh. don't, don't really like the idea of somebody else doing it either. Uh, when I pin them down, I ask them, well, so... So do you see any difference whatsoever between the nation of Israel and the church of God? Do you because like what about the tribes and what about the Levitical priests and what about Moses? Mm-hmm. And uh well no, I see some difference. Well then you're dispensational. I mean if you see any difference at all in the way that those things should work, the order of God, then you're dispensational now it's just a question of do you see any difference between the way Israel was organized and the way God dealt with Abraham? Uh-huh. Pretty much people go, well, sure, there's a difference. Well, then then you're dispensational. You just haven't really set your mind to work it out in what ways and why and so forth and so on. And you can just keep going backwards. You can just say, you know, how about between Abraham and Adam? Is there any difference? Well, yeah, yes. Well, what about Noah? See anything special about the way God dealt with Noah compared to everybody else before him? Well, yeah. So you end up, if you just put it in plain terms rather than these esoteric and elevated ways in which people fight good doctrine, right, with their theologies and their stuff, mm-hmm. and, and they'll probably spring on something that they think you believe right there before they'll even answer those questions. And say, you know, you believe you don't believe that you're going to go through the tribulation, do you? Or, or they might ascribe to you somebody else's thought you've never heard of, and they say, oh, you follow the teachings of such and such. I've had that thrown at me, and tell them I've never heard of such and such. The only mm-hmm. time I ever 
have heard of such and such now is when you guys mentioned such and such, and I never went and took the time because I don't remember who, what names they give. I never have taken the time to go back and, well, you should go look at what such and such said because you don't even know you're following his teaching. Well, now nah, I'm not because I don't know what such and such said. I'm reading the Bible. So if you were to characterize what a dispensation is in layman's terms, your own words. Well, it, it, it's say? a good word for me to define. It is the word from which we derive the word economy, oikonomia. Okay. Right? Compound word referring to oikos, the house, and nomia, the law. So it's a house law or house rule. It is the law of God's house. When I think of our economy, I think of a marketplace like money, exchanging hands. Is that derived from well, how things see, are? One of the mistakes we've done in our society is we've broken what we call political science off and divided it off from what we call economics. Mm. But the fact is that at one time in the 19th century, people uh, where schools were better, but fewer people went to them. That's why they were better. The subject was called political economy. It was part and parcel of philosophy. It brought together all the elements. So the term economy as used in the scripture, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That word encompasses more than simply the interactions of people as they trade money for goods and services. It's what we want to limit it to. Yeah, it's more broad than that. Because even when you understand, even when you look at how people spend money on goods and services, you will discover that their behavior is also social and political. It is not only... That's why the rules of economics break down, Mm -hmm. right? In order to explain away all that stuff... We always use the Latin term ceteris paribus. We just went ceteris paribus, and then you go make a statement. Well, what do you mean ceteris paribus? Well, all things being equal. Well, all things aren't ever equal. So you start off on a false assumption. Yeah, we assume perfect (laughs) knowledge. and Some other sad behavior is going to be, you know, optimizing, not satisfying, and I won't get into many of those things. Which we kind of have to do because there's so many variables that if they're all changing, you can't actually make any realistic conclusions. Is that the logic there? Well, what we end up doing is devising laws describing people's behavior with a set of mathematics that people don't really doesn't do. map onto reality at all. A little it does, yeah. You know, but yeah, no, it doesn't map you or doesn't map me. Yeah. Now when we look at human behavior inclusive and all of what we call political economy, mm-hmm. the way that people actually act with each other. This is now the right concept, and it is the Bible concept. The Bible concept of economy is the way that God designs the life of man under his sovereign rule. So, you know, God introduces things, and because he does, he changes the way everything goes. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he has a dispensation committed to him. Absolutely. That is such an important thing to note that Paul said a dispensation was committed to him. Now, he didn't say us, which he often uses. Yeah. You know, ge- Actually, Paul generously uses the term we and us. He generously uses it to mm-hmm. apply to all those who labor with him. You know, it speaks very well about those who eventually walked away from him, right? It does. So... Uh, That's an unusual statement for Paul to say, me, like that. Mm. And it should jump off the page and grab our attention, and it will. And let that 
sink in, chew on it, right, meditate, and think, well, what exactly does that mean, that a dispensation of God was committed to Paul? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. He also says that in the dispensation of the ages to come, he he, he references that in the book of Ephesians. Yeah, the fullness of times. Yeah, well, that there is a future dispensation, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So if there's a present one, this is, what I, this is what I tell my anti-dispensationalist friends, right? If there's a present one, and if there's a future one, there has to be a past one. You don't get a present dispensation without a past one. There had to be some uh, change. So when a dispensation's been given to Paul, and, there, and he talks about one in the future, there has to be one before him. You've already got three dispensations just right there. Mm-hmm. Now the only argument is how many are they and when they happen. But that conversation isn't one the one that's being had. So well, that was, say that's kind of the conversation that I'd like to have. Yeah, of course, that's the one we ought to have. Fun and that's, interesting. Yeah, that's the one that helps us come into the unity of the faith mm-hmm. through the teaching of God's Word, you yeah. know, having preserved the unity of the Spirit. But instead, these kind of pseudo-intellectual, I say pseudo-intellectual because they're pea-brained, pseudo-intellectual theological arguments which college kids are so crazy to have. They just mm-hmm. love them. And I think preachers love them, a lot of them, or wannabe preachers love these kind of subjects that they can you know, go out and pontificate on, and everybody goes away thinking, wow, he's a wonderful student, or he's so smart, or whatever they happen to get impressed about. And there's a tendency, right? There's a tendency for us to do those things. Well, sure. Well, I think it's a fruitful discussion about what is and isn't a dispensation, you know, because, for example, point blank right there, Paul says the dispensation's given to me. Mm-hmm. So was a dispensation given to the apostles before him, the 12? And, you know. Good question. Let me, I'm just plunging in medias rays here, you know. Yeah. This, maybe this will become a, a, what do you call it, a classic show, you know. <laughs> Was there a dispensation committed to the apostles? Well, well, is you know, is there this dispensation? And what of the twelve compared to Israel? Isn't there some change going on there? Mm-hmm. What I think emerges in that discussion, you know, that we're having. What I I think one of the considerations we might want to make is: Are there transitional periods of dispensations that are especially interesting? Yes. And are transitional periods between dispensations marked by any common thread so that we go, ah, there's a... Now, of course, now what I'm doing here, I'm introducing a concept for which I have not substantiated and then tell you, well, it's going to be interesting to see why that is substantiated. Because obviously I've given this thought before. And I do consider that there is transitional period that are marked by remarkable things. For example, if I may take it away from Paul and the Apostles sure. right now and move back in history, the flood was certainly a change of dispensation. I mean, it was a radical change mm-hmm. affecting every man that was going to be born the way that God has now aligned up his house or the rules of the life have changed. Very clear rule changes at the end of that time, right? Very clear rule changes, and some other changes that aren't just rule changes. Well, God's rule changes, like you're not going to live as long. Right, which we previously discussed. In addition, during that transition, there was the flood year, and people 
Yeah. Give scarce little attention to that, but he was a year in the arc. Agreed. And I've also often wondered, is that just a transitional year? Is that oh, that flood year is very important. It, it, it forms the basis of time. It forms the basis of time, mm-hmm. our year. It, uh, you wonder, well, what's going on with Noah during that time? What is Noah learning? Right. You can go further. I mean, I don't care what science you happen to, that catches your fancy. I think, you know, considering, for example, the movement of water upon the entire, well, what's that volume? You know, what's the volume of that water? What does that do for an entire year as the as the earth circles around the sun, for example? Does the tilt of the earth? Does the effect of that water sloshing around uh, with the Earth's rotation at 1,000 miles an hour, uh, does that, uh, might that alter the uh, orbital elliptic just a little? Does the tilt of the Earth increase? I mean, there's a lot of things to just kind of Yeah, so not just research. house order change, but like Earth change was a, I mean, there's a there, lot there's of change. Climate. I mean, you know, you want to go well, research climate there's change. There's some climate change probably. Yeah, you don't have enough data to do much reasonable inferencing that we sure yeah. find that going on and you know these models if they if they make them honestly i i know statistically they're completely invalid you've got to have a for model to be predictively valid it's got to have a very large uh, sample size yeah it's yeah. got to have a high regression score uh, square uh, number and those don't happen so i guess what i'm saying is you know looking at these at these uh, transitional periods even if they're brief and then examining what did change, and then why. See, why did the yeah. changes that took place take place? And, of course, in every dispensation, we should also learn, because every dispensation ends in failure, in human failure. Okay, so give me some for instances on that one. So we want to also know lesson learned, right? Lesson yeah. learned. Okay, well, let's start with the first one. Here's Adam and Eve, right? Created sinless. Yeah. There they are, you know? Sinless and created, and uh, yet they sinned. So what do we learn from that? What we learn from that is being sinless isn't help. It's not all that it cracked up to be. It's not all it's cracked up to be. And so when we when we come into, for example, the dispensation we're in, where knowledge is much more complete, right? Mm-hmm. We know a lot more. Yeah. Not because we're smarter, we're stupider. We know a lot more because we have the full revelation. We've been given a lot more. Yeah, yeah. All things pertaining to life and godliness. Yeah, we're not near as smart as those guys, and we don't have as much time to study. You know, Adam had, you know, 900 years or 900. Actually, he could have studied his entire life because, as we discussed, he was created an adult. Plus, things were slower back then. I mean, I always think about Job's buddies coming over, and they just sit on the porch with him for, like, yeah. weeks and talk. Yeah, well. It's like, man, well, they didn't have much to do. Well. <laughs> they had time. Serious, serious things happened to that poor man. Uh, well, well, I know. Well. So so let's let's just look at that. Let's just look at the change of dispensation that occurred yeah. from the time Adam and Eve were created sinless. Pre sin, post sin. Yeah, what'd we learn? We learned that being sinless isn't enough. You're not tested until you pass a test permanently. It's not enough. And when we carry that over to this present dispensation, we have, you know, teaching of people, wrong teaching of people. That, you know, when you're justified, it's just as if you've never sinned. Well, no, it isn't just as if you never sinned. As good as that may sound to you, yeah, that's what Adam and Eve had, and they fell. So actually, our salvation is 
better than that. Right. It's better than just as if I've never sinned. I've passed through death and into life. It's so good that I've sinned. Christ died for all of those sins, and there is no way that sin can ever have me again. Yeah, or as I say, don't give me a second chance. Give me imputed righteousness. Exactly correct. Second chances are for... Just can they fail a second time. They're they're every moment for Adam and Eve only. Yeah. So let me say that understanding the Bible dispensationally is just essential to understanding the Bible. When I lay out the dispensations as I see them, when I do a series like that, Hmm. I call it how to enjoy your Bible, right? Because without this framework that the dispensations provide, the framework that that provides is the only framework that's given in Scripture. And uh, when I say framework, I mean the Bible word outline, as Mm -hmm. you know. If the outline of Scripture is that which is supposed to be passed from one man to the next for the preservation of God's word in the ministry, then, you know, by golly, we ought to pay attention to that outline. And so, once again, I'm, I'm kind of drilling about how important it is rather than, you know, some of the details of, of what they are. But, uh, j- you know, just for example, you see, when the dispensation changes from Adam to all the way out to, say, for example, the one given to Paul, mm-hmm. which he calls the dispensation of the grace of God himself, he calls it that, then we, we can look and see how that's different. And by the way, it always turns out, like the book of Hebrews shows us, it's always better. So the book of Hebrews will compare dispensationally the place that we're in and compare it to the dispensation of uh, Israel. Right. And show us how much better we have it. And uh, even f- backward and forward, it actually does a little bit of comparing backward the dispensation of Israel as a nation under Moses mm-hmm. and forward the nation of Israel under the new covenant. So this is what's called rightly dividing or accurately handling, as a, as the New American Standard would say it, that a workman needs to study, show himself approved unto God, a workman. Of course, work is something we don't even want to talk about in our society. Let's not talk about that. Yeah, but a workman cutting straight the Word of God. Yeah, right division. Right division. Cutting straight is what it, it literally says, and this is coming from a guy that did what for a living, right? Made tents. He made tents. I'm pretty sure that one of the most important, probably the number one thing about making a tent is cutting straight. Yeah. And so this is a phraseology that's really brought to us with emphasis and you know should be well rubbed in to the mind of the Bible student. Yeah, because, I mean, it says that you do that, you need not be ashamed, right? So yeah, otherwise shame, you're going to be ashamed. Shame can come upon you if you fail to cut cut straight. Yeah, and the kind of shame that that's talking about is the shame of being unable to put forward the word of truth in in light of uh, gainsayers and contradictors and the malicious persons. Mm-hmm. So I see this all the time. I hear it all the time. It's very sad to watch a guy hold forth the Bible and then get kind of chopped up because he doesn't get it right or fail to take the opportunity of a massive audience where he could really interest them in the scriptures, and he doesn't do so, like Ken Ham and these creation science people. Massive audience, opportunity to really interest people in the scripture, and instead, when they ask for a fish, you you not only give them a stone, but it's old stones, 
You know, lots of old rocks. Mm-hmm. Yep. So let's. I would like to dig into some of the details around these dispensations, but you've already said that each dispensation is characterized by the failure of man at the end. That's right. right. We, we talk about why is there a need for change. Sometimes it's very obvious, as in the case of Adam and Eve. Sin, you know, judgment upon the earth, upon the serpent, the Nahash, them kicked out of the garden. Yeah, Things change, right? D- die and you shall die, right? That was a huge change. Now death is entered, yes. Okay. Noah... Obvious big change. We just said the flood. Massive. Okay, if you have those two, you have to have something in between the two. Right, you have to have something in between those two, unless one just folds right to the other, which it didn't. Yeah. So there you go. Now you got four. So you have Adam and Eve, and then you have something after them, and then you have Noah, and then you have at least what Paul's talking about. Well, I, you know, I said you've absolute proof you have three, but you've made absolute proof you've had four. Like, for example, if there's if there's anything that passing of time in between the nation of Israel and you know, Jesus Christ to the Reformed guy. Mm-hmm. You say, well, maybe we got to find something there, too. But in that case, maybe there isn't any difference. Maybe yeah. there is no change. I would argue that there might not be. But now you're talking about from Adam to Noah is, you know, to the flood, for example, if we take the flood as when we talk about, when we say Noah. You know, of course, you're 500 years old. Yeah, but if we say from from the time of Adam's fall to the flood, is that just is that all the same? And you say no. I mean, Adam and even the garden didn't just transition into Noah. So there's this thing in between. Yeah, Adam's fall, Noah. What is that thing? Well, what was that thing? Sin came in, right? Then it kicked off with not eating a fruit, but murdering your brother. Right, can so, mm-hmm. so now we've got bloodshed entered in, the bloodshed of man entered in. And contrary to what God told Noah after the flood, he puts a mark on Cain so that man doesn't execute him, so that he's not executed for murder. Yeah, Cain actually was not to be executed, whereas at the end of the flood, it's execute murderers, right? Yeah, by man shall his blood be shed. So what? what's the deal? Yeah, what is the deal? Well, here's the deal. We needed to learn that the religion of Jiminy Cricket doesn't work. See, I'm, I'm of the age, you're not, I'm of the age where if you wanted to see color television, pretty much you had to watch Disney's Wonderful World of Color on Sunday evenings. You know, that's where, that was the best color show on TV. And one of the very few. So you want to go watch Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. And every week, you would hear from a little green guy called Jiminy Cricket. And he would teach the children his religion, which was, let your conscience be your guide. He also taught us how to spell encyclopedia, Mm. but let your conscience be your guide. And that's what a lot of people think, and and, uh, that, that, that your conscience can be your guide. But all we have to do is read the Bible and look back that God let Cain to his conscience, left Cain to his conscience. What kind of a guide was that? Well... Turns out, conscience can't actually be your guide. In fact, we talked about this, I think, recently. Yeah. Conscience is the umpire, mm-hmm. safer out. So you see, we learned that it's not good enough to just be sinless. It doesn't work if your conscience is your guide. We're learning about where man fails. Well, it's pretty easy to see the failure of man during that age, right? Yeah, because- especially because it goes from 
don't kill this guy, let him think about what he's done, to the thought and intent of man was only evil continually. Every thought of his heart was only evil always. We actually could say that by each dispensation, we learn a little bit more about sin. You could could say it that way. I I think that's one aspect, and there's only one aspect. Mm. The other thing you can learn is that the height, the sufficiency, the marvel of the death of Christ, a subject little studied. Mm. Drill down to that, if you will. Well, you see, Christ died for the condition of Adam even before he fell. His condition of being sinless but unredeemed. His condition of being sinless and unjustified. It turns out that was a problem. Okay, we don't say Adam had a problem before he sinned, but it turned out that he wasn't justified. Mm -hmm. He was only sinless. And that it's better to be justified than sinless, as you say you you tell people frequently, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a lesson learned, and that makes the death of Christ even better than you think it would be, right? Yeah, for sure. Because, yeah. And and, uh, and David uh, David saw some of this, right? Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Um, and and he, he got that lesson. Then we learn also that the uh, death of our Lord Jesus Christ has provided a means whereby you don't have to become completely depraved in your thoughts. Even though you may have that thing that does that in you, mm-hmm. right? That Christ's work is preserving, is not just redeeming. You know, it's it's more than mere redemption. I don't want to talk about mere redemption as if you know the implications aren't much yeah. bigger than that. But sure, if I may use the term to rather than talk about the Lord's work, talk about the way people think about the Lord's work. Then you see his his death is is more than what you would originally think it is not a, just merely a get-out-of-jail-free card, but it's preserving in the life, yeah. in the mind. Does that tie into him being the author and finisher of our faith, yeah. the one who will actually save our lives yes. in addition to having saved our spirits? And then, and then, so you see the universal failure of man in, in that dispensation, which led to the deluge. Yeah. Well, the next dispensation, you see God raise up Israel— well, actually, you see him raise up Abraham. Okay, so this is this transition is a little bit harder to to see. The transition to Abraham. Yeah. So you have. Well, I think the transitionary piece that you see there is shortly after the flood. You know, and the, you've got the Tower of Babel. I think that's an interesting focus to see the need for this intervention. Intervention because the flood actually, the flood held promise, right? Mm-hmm. God promised he'd never do it again, but man is going to come and insist that he'll have to do it again, right? And we talked about this a little bit too, but the combination of what God did at Babel, confusing the speech, and what God did in the days of Peleg, of dividing the nations, we see God putting, you know, all mankind under a specific kind of discipline. Interrupted communication, separation of geography. To live in the age we live in, you see that there's unification of communication, right? Unification of communication. Instead of the Tower of Babel, you got Babel Fish. Instead of the Tower of Babel, you got Google Translate. Mm-hmm. 
instead of the Tower of Babel, where everybody got separated by their nation according to their mother tongue, the whole world's learning English. So you're actually— Logistically, we've conquered you know those problems as well. Yeah, and with that, the Bible student looks in his Bible and goes, I see why the wickedness is increasing. Man is overcoming the boundaries that God set for him. Mm-hmm. Not that— uh, and don't get me wrong, I don't want to say you can't fly overseas or anything. As you know, I do it you right. know, relatively often, but uh, I have done it relatively and often. And you use but, the internet uh, as well. In fact, we're using the internet right now. Yeah, we're using the internet right now. I'm broadcasting. I'm Chinese, brother. I know, that, I know there's Chinese guys that will be listening to this. And uh, some of my Kenyan friends have even commented and remarked about the show so that you know, we know that. So I'm not, I'm not trying to put a pejorative on the society we live in for communicating or for traveling. Yeah. Right? But to say that if you notice, you see, the mature Christian, well, I'd say the mature Christian church, the brothers and sisters are supposed to know, they don't have any need that someone tell them about you know, the times that they're living in because they, they have more wisdom than their teachers because they pay attention to the scriptures. And so when we, you know, to apply some of the fruit of good Bible study, which includes dispensational outline, we can fathom what happened, really happened at Babel. Mm-hmm. The moral de- degradation that was immediately in store for man. Again, we combine that with the days of Peleg, where God spread man out on the landmass, and then he cleaved it, chopped it up into hunks, and floated it out in the ocean. We get a few geography lessons from that. We could start paying attention to the fact of the sea and think about how ancient it actually is. Mm-hmm. And then we can look forward and see that one day it will be eliminated so that even that has some curious thought to it about sure. the salt water. And we can even appreciate estuaries and freshwater, which uh, is a wonderful picture of God's grace, a frequent meditation I have when I travel. And so there's a rich comprehension of, of man through the scriptures and the days in which we live and uh, all that kind of thing that I don't know how it can be derived without cutting the word of God into the, you know, straightly, mm-hmm. cutting it eat properly, and then piecing it together, which is what you do with the tent, right? You, you cut your raw material straight and you cut it into particular pieces that stitch together nicely and build an entire structure. And that is what's supposed to happen in the believer as he has a as a structure of doctrine is, can we just say, sown into his life. And, of course, that's why we're here, right? You know this. I'm, I'm talking to others here as I talk to you. Well, it's always nice to reinforce these thoughts. Right. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I understand. It, it's, it's, also, it's also interesting to, to talk about them. Yeah. But... but um, what I mean by that is that uh, the, the work of the ministry, technically 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is talking about the ministry where other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ. And then you build upon that and let every man take heed how he builds. Mm-hmm. This now also is, is, is much about, not only about, but much about the doctrinal house that is being built in the minds of the Bible student by the teacher. And, uh, of course, that one of the main qualifications of a teacher is that he has been taught 
so that he has obtained the form and the outline of sound words and is able now to deliver it to others mm-hmm. so that their building of their doctrinal house uh, as they add as they understand the outline and they have places to put things and their study becomes more rich and by the way enjoyable sweet to the mouth maybe bitter in the stomach but uh, enjoyable at least in the learning process itself all right, well, let's let's just pause here. I have a ton I want to ask you, specifically when we get into the transitional changes into and out of Israel. And okay. so we'll take that up next time, um, specifically focusing on the question, when does the current age actually begin? Are you giving me a hint? Or maybe I'll bring up something else. All right. All right.